Hello and welcome to the EDH Retcast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, the guy who's so strong that he can uncurl your foils. It's Matt Morgan. Joey, moving is quite the pain. I'm moving apartments this week and I realized my biggest problem was I didn't summon any pack rats. <laughs> That's not fair, Matt. You can't do a dad joke and a magic related joke. Ah, oh, man, a that got me good. That got me good. Next, the guy who doesn't care if the foils are curled as long as they are a shiny version of the card three visits. It's Dana Roach. During this intro, we've had two new secret layers announced, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> Uh, one is Jackson Pollock-themed art, which I don't know how that's going to work. And one's just blank cards where you draw your own thing in. And, oh, my goodness. And that one's 99 bucks, which seems like a bold price point for that, but I bet it sells. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you can be, th- those can be your Fetchland reprints. Anyway, there we go. There we go. With, with one of our weirdest openings ever, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck-building resource on the web for the Commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the EDH RecCast, what we like to do is give all that data a little more context. Fellas, what are we talking about this week? This week, we're going to talk about the most expensive decks, kind of the uh, inverse of what we did last week. Exactly. Last week was all about the budget decks. Now we want to take a look at the high rollers, the really pricey stuff. But before we get to it, we want to give a huge shout out and thank you to Josh Lequai and all the folks over there at the Command Zone who do all of the post-production on the podcast and make it look as spiffy and awesome as it possibly can. It's such great work. And of course, we want to give an amazing thank you to our sponsors. Yeah. So the sponsors, again, Card Kingdom and TCGplayer.com. They provide all the pricing data that comes up on EDH Rec. And I just want to thank them for helping support the show. And you you can support the show by going to cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC or click on any TCG player price link on the website. It'll take you right to TCG player and you can support the show that way as well. Absolutely. Really awesome stuff. Guys, let's get to that main topic. We are talking about the most expensive decks, the most con- uh, expensive commanders out there uh, to build quick notes just to make sure that we've, you know, set all the groundwork. The same notes as last week, basically. Um, commanders that have fewer than 100 decks on the website were not counted. We didn't actually have any of those to, you know, uh, eliminate from the high roller stuff. We had some pretty consistent numbers there, but it's just a quick thing that we wanted to do. Consistent rules as last week. Uh, also, this data was drawn from the beginning of May 2020. So it is sort of just a snapshot, not necessarily a consistent thing, because that's the other thing is that prices do change. And we learned this was a technical term on last episode. All the ding dang time uh, <laughs> prices can fluctuate a whole lot. So this is really just sort of a snapshot from the beginning of May. Yeah, I mean, to, to specifically point to some examples, in the last 30 days, we've had the card repercussion jump from like 2 or $3 to $40. Oh, um, my goodness. Yeah, wins of change has gone from roughly the same to around $25. Um, training grounds has doubled. It was close to 20 and it's almost 50 now. Um, <laughs> so, you know, those once upon a time could have been budget or, I guess, in training grounds, the upper end of budget. So your deck might have been built relatively cheaply and now looks much more expensive because of card prices that have gone up and that's the kind of thing that always happens some cards mm-hmm. just spike someone and they usually don't drop to that level for the most part so you do see some weird fluctuation there that really can be helped mm-hmm. yeah well and this is another good opportunity too just to talk about all the advanced filters on the site so you can go to any given commander or even specific cards and use the advanced filters you can make sure you're excluding specific cards so say you're looking for uh an ukima and kazer deck for example like i was recently but you don't want to do anything uh 
with Food Chain. So you can take out all the decks that are playing Food Chain using those advanced filters. Just go to the right side of the page and it'll say with or without, put in whatever card you want to include or exclude and hit filter. And it's going to change all the recs to make sure you're looking for exactly what you're trying to get. Yeah, there's those. And of course, the budget filters as well. You mm -hmm. can use the budget expensive filters or the budget budget filters uh, to eliminate any of the high or low priced data among those commanders. It's really great stuff. A lot of different ways. You know, we're going to be talking about a lot of expensive commanders on this episode, but they don't have to be built as expensive. They can be totally built on a budget. You can build any deck on a budget. We're just going to see if we can find any trends. But using those filters is a great way to help you out when you are building those things on a budget or when you're looking to spruce it up with some new pricey inclusions, too. All right, let's get into that data. Let's start looking at some individual commanders that sit among the highest ranks, the top most expensive, most commonly very expensive, really, really high roller stuff. Guys, let's get to them. What are we seeing here at the king of the high price commanders list? So the most expensive commanders that we're seeing on average, tip top of the list is going to be Thrasios decks, specifically ones that aren't playing white. That's quite a bit of decks out there, almost 2000 to date, but the average deck is almost $2,800. This is gonna be, <laughs> it's, really it's ridiculous. That is so expensive. It's also gonna be followed up by Sliver Queen, which is coming in at number two, which is of course the five, uh, five color legendary sliver, make all sorts of sliver tokens. The average deck there, almost $2,300. Then next up, we're gonna go to Krom Ludwig's Opus. That's number three coming in just under $2,000 on average. And uh, fourth place, Kazer, Ruthless Stalker, the new partner with Commander, partners uh, with Ukima. Those decks are averaging about the same, actually, just under $2,000. Oof, really high rollers. And, and, and then we get to things like Teferi, Temporal Archmage, uh, Kinnan, Bonder, Prodigy, Riel, the Everwise, and Angus McKenzie. So we, we go from you know, a couple of brand new commanders to Angus being really, really old, probably one of the oldest commanders we'll see uh, on these lists for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sliver Queen as well, an ancient, ancient card. You know, it's as old as Dana or, you know, maybe Dana's <laughs> older than that. He's probably older than that. Um, <laughs> he is He is older than that. Just a little Sorry, bit. you guys give me digs about my age all the time, so I have to give it. <laughs> and, and I have bad digs about your age. My jokes are not good. I'm wasting a lot of time here. I'm sorry. What does strike out at me here is that we do see a lot of new commanders on this list, stuff like Riel or the Kazuru Kima pair. Um, th those are uh, kind of kind of sticking out. That I find is definitely very uh, interesting. There, we also see a lot of colors here. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's no mystery that the dual lands play a really big part in uh, whether these commanders that have a lot of colors to them and therefore would require a lot of dual lands. I say require with sort of bunny quotes because you don't need dual lands to play this game at all. But like the bigger that the mana base is, the more spruced up the mana base needs to be. Therefore, the higher the price tends to be, and that's why we see so many colors among these uh, different commanders that we're looking at. Well, and, and one big thing, too, that we're seeing is there's a lot of blue. Uh, we we uh, mentioned in the previous episode, yeah, yeah there, there's a lot of red, a lot of white, a lot of monocolor. Well, we're starting off with a four-color, a five-color, another four-color, and then a three-color commander set up with for as, as far as color identity, which means there's a lot of underground seas that people are putting into lists, maybe not in the actual physical decks, but online they're putting underground sea, bayou, tropical island, all those expensive original dual lands, they're putting those in some sort of decks and, and that adds up really quick, but just blue's not a cheap color to play, at least if you're trying to go all out. Well, yeah, I mean, literally all eight of those ones we mentioned there, all are, are decks running blue. And so you have the factor of the original AVUR duels. Those are the expensive duels for one. And then you have cards that maybe aren't like crazy, like a time twister or anything, but there's a lot of blue cards that show up in a lot of these decks that sit in that really painful 
you know, $200 range, $100 range, even Cyclonic Rift showing up at, you know, it's closing in at $50, <laughs> I think now. But those, yeah. blue, oh. those blue decks can very easily run Force of Will. They can run things like Mana Drain. The, the new counter spell that's name is escaping me that, that, is free if you control your computer. Fierce, Fierce Guardianship. Fierce Guardianship is, you know, a 30 to $40-ish card right now. There's a lot of that stuff in blue that's, you know, again, not crazy, but is expensive enough. And once you have three or four or five of those, plus a few dual lands in your deck, that's a down payment on a car, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, here, yeah, here's absolutely. a fun fact. You have to go to number 31 on this list to find a commander that is not playing blue, <laughs> and that is Captain Sisse. Wow. Man. So, yeah. <laughs> blue is expensive, kids. Ask blue for more allowance. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, that's great. So, yeah, but we don't want to, you know, just like last week, we don't want to look at just some individual of these commanders. We actually want to see if we can spot any trends, if there are any specific strategies or commander deck archetypes that might be a bit more consistently expensive to try and brew. And that's what we wanted to do. So we're going to zoom out, not just looking at these, uh, you know, topmost commanders, but actually seeing if there are any other trends that we can see by looking at the top 100 of them and measuring the archetypes that we see most consistently among them. Dana, when we do that, when we take a zoom out, what is the most common archetype that we are seeing among the most expensive commanders. The most common archetype for most expensive commanders is exactly the same as the most common archetype for least expensive commanders, and that's tribal. Yeah, that it is. We've got 19 of the top 100 as tribal commanders. Stuff like the Sliver Queen or Sliver Overlord or uh, Morophon actually shows up here. Kalia of the Vast, a personal favorite of mine from the original commander product, uh, a lot of expensive angels and demons and dragons out there, I guess. Uh, yeah, tribal is not just a budget thing. It's also an expensive thing. I think that's really nice to see. It's just sort of a magic thing. That is a thing that you can do on a budget and if you want to tune up and make it really expensive. Well, and again, every one of the cards that are on this list for tribal are all blue or have the ability to play blue, like in the case of Najila or um, General Tazri. I did just name Kalia, so I'm going to push back. Oh, did I miss Kalia? Oh. Okay, yeah, oh. you're right. I'm I'm only pushing back me. like one of those because you're right about all of the other ones, but yes. not about that one. <laughs> all right, yeah, but no, there are actually even some mono blue ones that I'm seeing here. Uh, for example, Naru Meha actually shows up here, and that can be a wizard tribal commander or Una. That's a fairy tribal. So there's a whole bunch of that too. Let's move on to archetype number two now, though. Matt, what's in second place? So second place, not too far behind, with 15 of the top hundred archetypes is going to be Artifacts, and that's one that we kind of predicted last week. Uh, it, it doesn't surprise us that Artifacts is going to be a more expensive build. Some of the common commanders there, uh, the new Urza, Mono Blue, you can do all sorts of busted stuff with anything regarding Urza, but you also have stuff like Arkham Daxon, uh, Silas uh, Wren, all sorts of different fun stuff out there. Brea obviously is going to be a very expensive commander just because of the mana base, back to that four color there. Um, we also have stuff like Nin, the pain artist. You have Elsha, the infinite, all sorts of different artifact strategies, all doing different things, which is something very interesting to point out because all those commanders, yes, they're artifact centered, but they're doing something different, which is I like to see. I think Nin sort of stands out as one that you might not expect to be built as an artifact, but right. there are so many artifacts on its EDHREC page that it is showing up as being consistently built as sort of artifacts. But again, the thing that I kind of want to linger on when we're looking at artifacts, Dana, you just made a mention about blue. Artifacts, also very, very blue. There's a lot of blue here, you bet. A lot of volcanic Indeed. islands. 
Yeah, so in that case, I would love to move on to the third place uh, here because the next strategy is not necessarily explicitly blue. We're talking about lands. Landfall or land-centric strategies also show up as a very consistently expensive archetype. Stuff like uh, the Gitrog Monster, for example, or Golos Tireless Pilgrim, also frequently built as a lands deck. Um, Azusa, Lost But Seeking, also shows up on this list. Lord Windgrace, Titania, one of my personal favorites. Mono green, lands all day. It's so good, but it's also pretty consistently really expensive as well. We've got nine of the top 100 are showing up as land decks uh, being really, really, really pricey. Um, and since, you know, Exploration and even Azusa and Oracle of Moldaya and all of those can be very expensive cards, even if you're not playing a lot of colors and need those dual lands, need again in bunny ears. Um, yeah, those are expensive cards. So those pieces add up. They add up a lot. Well, and those decks tend to run heavy in the fetch lands too, because a lot of times part right, of the right. land strategy is landfall triggers. So they're running very heavily on things like fetch lands. And, you know, Crucible Worlds isn't a cheap card and there's a lot of <laughs> right. blue in here as well. So like, who knows what counterspell packages we're looking at. Well, yeah. I think a lot of people are probably putting in stuff like dark depths and all those mm -hmm. very expensive utility lands. So th it, it, would make sense to me why some of these things are adding up because lands are kind of, you know, they always say invest in real estate. The same applies to magic. You know, you want to put <laughs> lands and lands go in every single deck. So lands, yep. you know, they can get pricey. Uh, I, it's weird seeing Golos here because I've been crushed by a $10 Gates Golos deck more than any other commander deck I can think of. So <laughs> I'm going to push back. No, I, I know why it's expensive. I'm just... I, I'm having flashbacks hearing just the word Golos lands. <laughs> Uh, that, that's fair. But yeah, no, that's a perfect example. That commander, and actually Yarok also shows up as a frequently built as a landfall for Sultai. Um, Yarok's amazing on a budget. That thing's bonkers on a budget. Golos, also really good on a budget. Any of these commanders can totally be built on a budget, but they are also very consistently built as not budget. And that's a trend that we should <laughs> notice. Like landfall, that's a strategy that's going to be a little bit more expensive, especially given, as you guys mentioned, all that real estate. All right. Number four and five, I guess, are actually a tie on the list. Matt, what do we have next? So next we have one deck that I just recently built, but we have a wheel, well, not specifically wheels, but the wheels theme. Uh, we have stuff like Riel, uh, also Braylon and Shabraz doing all the Wheel of Fortune type of effects and Windfall, discarding your hand, drawing a whole new hand. But you also have some commanders that fall into there like Yidris, one of the new um, newer commanders, Zyrus, uh, Kaidel, Nekusar, all those kind of add up and, and contribute to the seven uh, decks in the wheels theme that we are seeing here on the page. Mm -hmm. And also at seven tied with that, we've got Spellslinger. Again, a little bit of blue. Stuff like Kess is showing up here, Kaikar as well. Uh, Kevernos also shows up among the Spellslinger archetype as being a very expensive. Huh. Uh, so wheels, guys, we're seeing a lot of blue and a lot of lands. I guess this isn't really all that surprising. Let's finish up with number six on the expensives list. They've got five decks to this archetype. Dana, what are we seeing? We're looking at uh, Super Friends which, you know, Planeswalkers just tend to be expensive cards in general. So if you're looking at a deck where you're running 15 or 20 Planeswalkers, all of which tend to run, you know, generally a minimum of $5 for the most part, all the way up to things like the original Yugen or, or the original Karn that are much more expensive and can go in any Super Friends deck by virtue of being colorless, that number gets pretty high pretty quickly, pretty easily. And also doubling season. You bet. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I said that we were going to finish up, but actually I want to talk about two more. There's another tie right behind these. And um, it's funny. I guess I kind of want to mention them because one of these uh, strategies I love and the other one 
I don't love very much. Matt, do you want to tell us what they are coming up after that? I actually kind of want to linger on these because uh, it, it could be fun to watch me enjoy something and then watch me squirm. Well, so the question is, do I want to watch you squirm first or do I want to watch you enjoy? I'll, 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 well, let's talk about the pleasant things then. So aristocrats is the next archetype we're seeing. Um, four decks coming in. You, you have, you know, the, the typical suspects, uh, Prosh, Sky Raider of Kerr, does all sorts of sacrifice things. Um, but you also have stuff like Tyam and Chain of Dementia, Ma Dementia Master, um, and also Carador as an Aristocrats deck, um, sacrificing all of your own things to get some sort of value. It's a very popular archetype, and it's not surprising to see a, a decent amount of decks up here in the top 100 as far as, you know, the blinged out expensive decks. Yeah. Right tied with it, though, is the one that I'm not sure I like all that much. It's Stacks. Stacks shows up with four of the top 100 most expensive commanders as being their uh, sort of iconic strategy. Stuff like Grand Arbiter, Augustine the Fourth, really great to make everyone else's spells cost more to cast. Or Derevi also shows up here. Uh, Teferi, Temporal Archmage. That one can be also maybe a bit super frenzy, but really a thing that you see a lot is like a Teferi lockdown with stasis uh, sort of thing that can be a very expensive uh, strategy here too. So aristocrats and stacks, one of those, big thumbs up from Joey. The other one, please don't do that to me. <laughs> well, in, in a stacks deck, you know, there are people that are actually running Tabernacle at Pendrel Vale in their EDH stacks deck, and Ooh. that card alone is going to just blow right. up the entire budget for the deck. <laughs> right. Uh, that card alone could build me like four decks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's just it. So again, any of these strategies can totally be built on a budget, but these are some of the consistent strategies that we're seeing. However, there is kind of an asterisk that I feel we ought to put into uh, some of the commanders and some of the data that we just mentioned. But before we actually handle what that asterisk is, before we maybe reconfigure the data a little bit, let's pause real quick and challenge the stats. There's a lot of data here on Ediatrek, but we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards are seeing too much play. Sometimes we think that they're seeing too little play. So what we like to do is challenge the numbers, challenge those stats. Matt, get us started this week. What is your challenge? So this is a challenge that I've seen popping up in a lot of lists. I really, really like it, and I want to try it out. And I think it is probably going to be a little underrepresented at this point in the commander's lifespan. So I mentioned earlier, advanced filters, uh, looking at Ukima and Kazur decks, it's the Sultai partner with pair. Uh, Ukima is what I really want to focus on because it's just a hound. It's just a good old <laughs> hound. Um, but Teferi's Time Twist is a card that I think is not showing up in enough decks so far. So it's only in 20% of the 163 decks that do not include Food Chain. Now, we talked about advanced filters. Using, uh, getting rid of all the Food Chain decks, it kind of weeds out the very tune, the, the top, top, as far as power level goes, types of decks. And I want to look more at the plus one, plus one counters. So Teferi's Time Twist is an instant for one and a blue, and it says exile target permanent you control, return that card to the battlefield under its owner's control at the beginning of the next end step. If it enters the battlefield as a creature, it enters with an additional plus one, plus one counter on it. Now, this is great if Ukima has a you know any sort of targeted removal. You can bounce it, bring it back at the beginning of the next end step, which means you can dodge wrath effects with it too, which is very, very important. But also, more importantly, you get a leave the battlefield trigger with Ukima so that you get to hit somebody for a little bit of life, gain a little bit of life yourself, and then return it with more power than it had to begin with. So it's a very, very good card. It's one of those nice utility cards specific to Ukima. And I think 20% is probably a little underrepresented when it comes to Ukima decks. 
That's a really cool one because if you hit someone with Okima, let's say you put a Colossification onto Okima, which, by the way, is real good. You can hit someone with it, which might commander damage, and then you can use the Teferi's Time Twist to blink the thing to deal 22 damage to some other poor sap over on the other side. Uh, Matt, that's really mean. Uh, I love it. I love that you're playing black. Um, but uh, <laughs> please don't do that to me either. I don't, I don't want stacks, and I don't want that happening to me either. <laughs> that's that's fair. I mean, I'm excited to try it out. Let's just I'll, I'll yeah. leave it at that. No, it's versatile because it can be protection or it can be lethal. That's a really great pick. Yeah. I, I'm super here for it. Uh, speaking of great picks, mine comes to me from a user <laughs> on Twitter. At Zephyrnaut, you have enlightened me so much. I have a Graven Predator Captain deck who's the really awesome, Mar uh, not Mardu, Rakdos Menace, turns your life loss into power. It's so, so great. And I've paired it recently with Obosh, the Prey Piercer, or as I call him, Mr. Hugsy, because he just wants to hug you with all of those limbs. And at Zephyrnaut has on contacted me on Twitter to show me a card that I am absolutely putting into this deck as soon as I can get a copy of it. The card is called Soul Channeling. Three mana enchantment, an aura onto Graven, where you can pay two life to regenerate the enchanted creature. Oof. I'm so excited. It, like, that's that's so good. It's only showing up in 3% of the 550 Graven lists so far, but I am so excited to find protection that can also be lethal. Matt, we're on a wavelength this week. I'm so here for it. I'm so excited. <laughs> I, I'm just so upset that every week we seem to be giving Joy a better <laughs> right. and better <laughs> and better just life sink into Graven and, and it's... <sighs> Uh, it's so I'm not good. looking forward to playing Mist mistakes were made like every <laughs> single week you, we just give Joey more ideas and I'm I'm thinking this might be a mistake guys Let's especially if you give giving... him lifelink you can yeah. just pay life and then protect him in case someone tried to use a curtains call and then you can also make that life loss onto your oh, I'm so excited it's ever not thank you so much for the suggestion this is one of my favorite challenges ever I'm so so happy I love it I am not here for this okay last but not least since we're discussing expensive decks Tabernacle at Pendril Vale I want to talk about. No, I'm not. That's uh, that would be insane. Okay. Um, actually, I'm going to talk about a very cheap card. Riftstone Portal is a land from Judgment, and it's under a dollar. So this would have fit in the last week discussing budget decks. It taps for a colorless mana, and it doesn't come into play tapped. Um, what's interesting about it is, as long as it's in your graveyard, lands you control tap for green and white. So it's a colorless land, land that turns all your lands into savannas. It's only in 960 decks right now, but if you are playing something in Selesnia and you're running Harrow and running Crop Rotation, which are two relatively common cards you see in those kind of decks, or you're playing even something like Obzan and you have Mill going on, which is fairly common in Obzan because you have commanders like Carador that want stuff in the graveyard or Kethis or the new uh, Nathroy or Teneb the Harvester, um, uh, Cathro Aspect Weaver. There's a lot of stuff in those colors that wants to to put your own things in the graveyard and why not have a land to go in your graveyard that makes all of your lands into savannas. So I, I think there's a lot of decks that could use that card and aren't playing it. Matt, I have a question for you. Yes. Are you at all surprised that Dana has chosen for his challenge of stats a card that none of us have ever heard of before? <laughs> I'm not surprised. Well, I've heard of it because I play Mr. Selesnya has heard of it. Yeah, Mr. Selesnya <laughs> okay, right here. Okay. The evangelist himself. Uh, Fair enough. I'm not surprised because it is a very, very good card. I do think if you're playing any sort of green-white X deck, 
it's just something you should be playing. Um, it's very, very easy, like Dana said, to get it into your graveyard. So yes, uh, in the words of Joseph M. Schultz, <laughs> I'm here for it. And, and I believe, <laughs> little trivia here, I, I, I believe, I'm not 100% positive, but this was kind of the the counter to Cabal Coffers in those sets, where we had a really strong black set in Cabal Coffers was a unique land. Riftstone mm. Portal was kind of the corollary to, to Cabal Coffers. Not near as good. Though. It's clearly not as good as Cabal Coffers, but it's yeah. a pretty decent card. It should be in more decks. It's 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 a decent card, but I'm it's I'm gonna no stick Cabal with my Cabal coffers. coffers. I'm gonna sure. stick with the mono black decks over here. I love me playing black and Cabal Coffers is a huge reason why. Uh, but I appreciate that you're trying to uh, to find. I'm trying to help that. Matt out. You've been getting all these new cards, so this <laughs> is for Matt. Just spreading the good word. I appreciate exactly. It. Awesome. All right, guys. So let's get back into the data. And I mentioned sort of an asterisk before, and that's what we're going to get to now. Some folks may have noticed when we were talking about the expensive commanders previously that a lot of those commanders are actually CEDH commanders. They're played very consistently at the top tier of competitive EDH play. Stuff like the Sliver Queen, for example. And a thing that we kind of, you know, we're thinking about as we were finding all of this stuff on this list is that, you know, we can call Sliver Queen tribal, but the way that it's actually played at that top tier of EDH play isn't necessarily as a tribal strategy. That's actually played as a combo. And actually, Ukima and Kazar, that's another example of a commander that isn't necessarily played as a plus one counters deck among the competitive play. That's also a chom- uh, a chombo, a combo. Uh, <laughs> Matt, like you mentioned, uh, with the food chain, that is also another one of those combos out there. So we kind of wanted to maybe rearrange the data a little bit to sort of account for that because we didn't want it to be affecting the archetypes that we were seeing. We didn't want that to be in any way misrepresentative. If, you know, these combo decks are showing up as tribal, that might mess with the numbers a little bit, right? So what we wanted to do is try and filter that out, see if that changes the data at all. And the results are pretty interesting. What we did is we consulted uh, what is considered to be the uh, sort of the tier list um, among the CEDH uh, community, the ones that we've seen the CEDH luminaries refer to most frequently. Um, And we looked at the tier one, tier 1.5, and tier two commanders uh, that are all listed as the most exemplary and competitive among that format. And we took them out of the list just to see what might happen, just to see if that affected the numbers at all. Um, And... This thought experiment, I think, paid off greatly because here's the thing. It didn't affect the numbers at almost at all. The archetypes are still very much the same ones that we just covered. So, Dana, take us through it. Start us off. What does this new list look like when we've actually taken out the stuff that is played very frequently as competitive and started, you know, taking a look at other stuff here? The the new list is the same as the expensive list that is the same as the bargain list where tribal is number one on the list. Yeah, it's, it's you know it's 22 commanders that are showing up here for the most expensive commanders. Uh, you have Kalia, you have Scarab God, you have Morophon, you have Azami, uh, Reaper King, Karthus Tyrant of Jund, and Horde of Notions. So tribal decks are apparently both the cheapest and the most expensive decks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it totally makes sense. If you're playing at the competitive tier, the highest tier of play, you've got a lot of the most expensive cards um, in that list. But also, you know, some of these tribal strategies, even without some of those types of strategies, some of these are more on the fringe side of competitive level, possibly. But they are still showing up as a lot of tribal. 22 among the top 100. We still got a lot of tribal. It's everywhere. And number two on our previous list was artifacts. Matt, what's number two on our new list? Well, it hasn't changed. It's still artifacts. <laughs> it's still artifacts. It's still artifacts. And you still have commanders like Sharum the Hegemon. You have Marisil. You have Karn, pantsed or non-pantsed, whichever Karn you prefer. <laughs> uh, we also have commanders like we talked about with Zerda and Memnarch uh, showing up, uh, populating a lot of these more expensive decks. And you even have Duretti, Mono Red Artifacts. 
Why mm-hmm. not? It also can be expensive if you want it to be. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. A lot of those artifacts can be very, very pricey. Stuff like Darksteel Forge, for example, can still be uh, really, really up there. So yeah, the, they really haven't yep. changed. Wheels and lands are also on this list, showing up with six of the top 100 each. So stuff like the new Zyrus, for example, or Nikusar, still showing up as very pricey strategy uh, there for the wheels, like we saw on the previous list. And lands as well. Azusa, Titania, Lord Windgrace, not necessarily among the competitive side and still very pricey because like we said before oracle moldiah and exploration they they're way up here there is only one new quote-unquote entrant to this six of the top 100 were reanimator strategies or specifically graveyard strategies stuff like uh Muldrotha, for example or my personal bay the mimeoplasm i'm so happy to see him here i guess i'm not because i want more people to be able to play him and i don't want it to be expensively prohibitive but i, I do like seeing the mimeoplasm on any list basically <laughs> Yeah, it's really kind of fascinating to to see just how similar these two lists are just all the way down to the bottom. Yeah, it, it really didn't affect things too much. Spellslinger yeah. is also on this list. Stuff like Karanos again showing up here. And then uh, with four of the top 100, Planeswalkers, still an expensive strategy. We've got stuff like Atraxa showing up as a very, very consistently expensive commander here. So it's just nice to see that, you know, those didn't necessarily change the data at all. Even if those strategies, you know, the Sliver Queens might be played as combo more often than tribal. We are still seeing that the archetypes are very consistent across both of these measurements of the data. Um, and now I guess I just kind of want to take your guys temperature about what you think of all that were these the archetypes that you maybe expected would be the most consistently expensive to build in edh or did you expect that there might be completely different ones what do you think um you know the archetypes i guess weren't really surprising i i unlike the the budget decks i don't know if i had anything in my mind that would make one more expensive than the other if anything maybe artifact decks just because that tends to encourage people to run expensive mana rocks maybe more than they normally would um you know it's pretty easy to not that grim monolith isn't great but like it's much easier to maybe rationalize that in an artifact deck than it would be without it if you're not playing cedh so i'm not surprised artifacts were that high but um I thought it might be above tribal, but nothing's really shocking here for me. How about you, Matt? Uh, artifacts being at the top is not surprising at all because, I mean, you have so many just very expensive cards showing up in all these artifact decks. Like, a Mycosynth Lattice is going to be expensive mm-hmm. no matter what you do. Uh, I mean, even a lot of your cheaper utility cards, like your good Planeswalkers, you know, Tezzeret Master of the Bridge. I know, Dana, you have that in your artifact deck, and that's, you know, a 5 $6 card nowadays. So all of your kind of filler cards even that aren't your marquee, you know, Clan right. Ironworks, those cards are yeah. in such high demand. You know, Psy Master Thopterist is almost a $5 card again. So it's really? just, yeah, yeah, Woo. you're welcome. Right. But yeah, it's, there's just all these little, little filler cards, you know, War of Invention, Padim, uh, Console of Innovation. All those cards kind of add up, and those are very, very common and popular cards in the artifact theme. So combine all those filler cards that are five, six dollars with your twenty and thirty dollar cards. It's not surprising. I'm actually surprised uh, artifacts is not the most expensive or most common mm. expensive archetype. That that I think I I'll, I'll definitely sign off on that one. Uh, I'll totally agree because I don't think that I had expected tribal to be a very expensive archetype uh, to build. I don't think that I had imagined that it would be among the top strategies. But mm-hmm. it really is just such a prolific strategy in Magic that it's going to be consistent among all those lists because there are so many out there. Um, but artifacts, I mean. Trying to build an artifact deck has been really expensive for me to try to do as well. I think I might have maybe imagined that lands might be a little bit higher too, possibly. Um, but I think they're also perfectly comfortable where they 
are. And that probably just comes down to a density issue. There's a lot more artifact commander possibilities out there than necessarily there are a lot of landfall decks out there. Um, something that I notice is very, very absent from here is stuff like plus one counters decks. Given, you know, the increased price of cards like doubling season or what have you, maybe plus one counters I'd had in my mind in the idea that maybe those might show up here is also being a very expensive archetype, but they're really just not. I think we had, I guess you could call Atraxa technically a plus one counters deck, but it's more consistently built as Planeswalkers, which is why it registered in that archetype here. Um, but just a lot of those strategies are actually very budget friendly. So we're not seeing that that's a difficult one to build. Uh, you know, it's it's not a very high expensive one here. And, and I guess that one's kind of a tiny surprise to me. But for the most part, Artifacts is the only one that I thought would be really big. And then the rest is kind of falling into what I think my expectations were, um, which is reassuring question mark, I guess. Well, one, one anecdotal thing I will throw out there that I think makes th that explains why the two lists are so similar in terms of both budget and non-budget um over the years of playing commander you know i i've seen friends and i've done this myself where you build that deck and, and you tend to start at the relatively budget version of say your Kali of the vast deck or something and you find you like the deck it's a budget deck to start with but it's something that you kind of fall for and i want to keep playing this deck so you go pick up that, you know, Badlands for it. And suddenly that deck jumps up in price, you know, a hundred and some dollars. And I go, okay, you know, well, I want to get those dragons back from my graveyard. So I'll save up my, my nickels and dimes and, you know, pick up that Yagmas Will down the road. And that, that goes in the deck then six months later. And so over the course of several years, that deck that started as a budget deck is no longer a budget deck, but the person built it for the same reason. So I, I feel like it, it makes sense that these lists are very much in parallel because I would bet a lot of these decks started off as a, you know, quote unquote budget deck and just have morphed into a more expensive deck by virtue of people having it for a few years <laughs> and adding new cards. And, well, and to I, build I, on to, onto that too, Dana, um, tribal is probably one of the most popular themes, period. in general. Yeah, right, so it's almost the, the top two, especially artifacts and tribal. It's almost kind of an accuracy by volume. They're bound yeah, to right. be the most represented on both ends of the spectrum because there are just that many decks out there falling into artifact theme and, and tribal theme. Um, but tribal being the most expensive, looking at the list a little bit more, there's a lot of five color again, which requires a lot of mana fixing. And so you can do mana fixing very cheaply. You play your guild gates, you play your gain lands, or you can play your fetches, your duels, your shocks, all the, the very high end stuff. So you can build a mana base on $2 or $2,000. And so that's why seeing you know all these five color decks, it, it makes more sense the more that I'm looking and, and kind of processing this information. Right. Yeah, it's funny, Dana, I totally relate to the experience that you mentioned earlier about you've got a deck that you built, you know, cheaply or otherwise, and then you fall in love with it and you want to keep it and then you'll tune it up. I don't know that Yawgmoth's Will and Badlands <laughs> are, the, sure. like, I'm thinking more like, oh, I picked up an Anime Dead and then eventually a Necromancy as well, and that's a bit more expensive. Uh, so more in the, like, human dollar range instead of the alien dollar sure. range, I guess. Uh, but the the... The most popular by volume thing that you had just mentioned there, Matt, it is kind of interesting to compare that to the most uh, common themes that we see on EDHREC. Artifacts is one of the most common themes, along with Tribal. There are so many card types out there. Tribal is a, a great big umbrella for that. Um, but then Aristocrats, Life Gain, and Plus One Counters also show up as very, very common themes among a bunch of these commanders because there is such a high density of each of those. And the Aristocrats, Life Gain, and Plus One Counters, those are things that we've seen on the budget list as well. Uh, so that is also potentially a 
you know, by their density, by their volume, but they aren't necessarily inherently more expensive to build uh, based on that, which is kind of something that I wanted to point out there. The, the other question that I had for you guys is whether you've had any difficulty building any of these strategies on a budget. Um, if you're trying to build landfall, if you're trying to build artifacts, has that been um, something that you've felt comfortable doing on a budget? Or do you feel like it is uh, more consistently, you, f you feel obligated, I guess, to uh, build these strategies on the more expensive side? Um, wh what do you think on that? Well, I, I built my first landfall deck, the first version of Om, uh, Omnath Locus of Rage that I built, which is the red-green Omnath, all about landfall, making, you know, 5-5 five, five, uh, tokens. The very first version, I don't think I had any fetches. I don't think I had any shocks even. Uh, I played a lot of panoramas. I played any of the, the basically, your, your budget versions of those fetch lands, and it was still very, very powerful. It, Omnath does not care if your fetch land is $0.02 cents or $20. It's, you're still going to get a, a creature token out of it. So depends on kind of what what you're trying to do with it. If you're trying to be all about speed and efficiency, the mana base is going to help you. That's uh, that's never going to be in um, up for debate, really. But how efficient you're actually going to be on specific decks like Landfall, um, you don't need the optimized top tier like mana bases, for example. You can, you know, Omnath, once you have that, you can put 99 lands in there and you're probably still going to be able to <laughs> win games every now and then. Uh, that's really awesome. Dana, what about you? Have uh, you had experiences building any of these strategies? Were they inherently expensive? Did you feel like they were actually fine on a budget? What do you think? Um yeah, they're 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 fine about in a budget. I've not had any problems. The one weird thing that I've encountered, particularly in the last couple of years, when it comes to building on a budget, is cards that that were once semi-budget related or semi-budget e additions to a deck kind of no longer are. But mm. I have them in my collection, so it kind of becomes a moot point when it comes to adding them to, to a deck. Um, sure. Two examples that jump out at me, um, back when Urborg Tomb of Yawgmoth was in, I think it was M14 or M15? M15. M15. It was like a three or four dollar card. And it was one of those cards. I'm like, well, every black deck I build till the end of time, I'm going to put an Urborg in. So I might as well grab like, you know, six, eight, ten of these. I, I picked up, you know, quite a few of them, enough that I thought, I'll have enough for every deck I build. Well, it's a $25 card now. Right. So I can just blindly jam that into any black deck I build without thinking about the budget. And it makes a deck look like it's more expensive kind of than I intended. Strip mine's the same way. I stocked up on strip mine for years when it was a $3 card because I'm like, well, I'll put a strip mine in every deck. It's $3. I might as well hold on to them. Again, it's a $25-ish card now. So I, I just jam it blindly in any deck without thinking about it. And between those two cards, if I'm playing a black deck, I'm putting $50 worth of cards, quote unquote, into it that I picked up for, you know, $6, $7 total between the two of them. So that's something that like a, a privilege, I guess you could call it, that I have in terms of budding for budget by having been playing for six, seven, eight years now, Commander, and holding on to some of these cards. Um, it's easy to build with cards that were once, quote unquote, budget, and they're no longer that. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, Cyclonic Rift had come up earlier. You mentioned yeah, that was absolutely. how expensive now? Yeah. I remember when those were $2 because yeah, they were brand new and no one realized what a menace it was about it, to become. Oh, yeah. And that was one too, like back, you know, Khan's Here time when it's a dollar or $52 card maybe. It was easy to say, that's amazing and I'm going to put it in every blue deck. I might as well hold on to four or five of these to get me through the next, you know, six, seven years. And suddenly it's a crazy expensive card that you just happen to have or some people just happen to have lying around. 
Yeah. The the budget decks of today become the expensive decks yeah, of tomorrow. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, and it brings up a point that I know uh, over on the command zone, they've they've brought up several times. Jason Alt, um, who podcast extraordinaire, he mentions all the time, you know, when you're buying a card that you think is too cheap, just buy two. That way, you know, if one does get expensive, you can sell the second one and you basically got your card for free. Um, we're not finance experts by any means, but there are a bunch of d different tricks. Listen to Brainstorm Brewery. They're, they're a great podcast, not trying to play the finance game so much as make the game cheaper. Um, there's yeah, lots right. of different resources out there. They talk about all, all the time, much better than we can too. But yeah, Dana, I've been in those shoes too, where I've bought cards for three, $4 and all of a sudden they're, they're 20. I'm like, well, I may as well sell this. Cause like I, I got my money's worth out of it. Um, that's kind of how or, or, I, or, or that's how I have say, all my duels. Am I going to not, not put it in my deck because it's now expensive? I'm, I'm still going to use yeah. it, but like, you know, you, you're not really building on a budget, even though it's not really costing you anything out of pocket either. So things do get kind of weird when you've been playing for a while. Yep. Yeah. A, a thing that I kind of wanted to bring it back to the um, the two topics that we did between this week and last week, we had mentioned that tribal showed up as both a you know budget friendly archetype, but then also a consistently expensive archetype. That wasn't the only one. And I, I just want to play a quick catch up with last week's uh, archetypes that we noticed as being the most budget friendly or the most consistently built on a budget. We had tribal up there. Voltron decks, that's equipment and auras, were also uh, pretty popular on there. Tokens decks, plus one counters and spell slinger and life gain. Spell slinger, I kind of want to linger on that one because that's another one that shows up as a consistently expensive archetype too. Tribal, artifacts, reanimator, lands, and wheels were all stuff that we saw were very uh, very built on uh, on the upper echelon, um, very expensive. But Spellslinger was as well. That's another archetype that is very you know friendly to either one of those. If you've got a Kaikar and you're just playing a bunch of opts, a bunch of small cantrips, that's going to get you a really great token army that's going to do a bunch of stuff. That's definitely budget-friendly, but you can also have that same strategy represented here among the uh, more expensive decks too. So it isn't just tribal. There's actually plenty of room for overlap. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Aristocrats is one that um, kind of shows up on both lists a little bit as well. That's something that you don't need to have very expensive versions of like the Coca shows or whatever sacrificing creatures to drain life. There's a lot of stuff like the Falcon Wrath Noble or the Vindictive Vampire out there that you can play too, which will help you find those same things. And okay, in saying all this, I realize that maybe this is just part of me being a propaganda person to say everyone yeah. should play more black and more aristocrats and stuff like that. But like, <laughs> my point is that there's actually a lot of overlap. Even if we saw some distinct archetypes, there really is a lot of ways that you can play any of these archetypes in either one of these categories. Yeah. Well, and at this point too, there there are so many cards in the game. You yeah. can have efficient, you can have effective, you can have powerful decks that maybe don't have the tier one version of whatever card that would go in the deck, but you have the tier 1.5, which costs 20 cents in tw instead of $20. That happens so much. Like you can build a cheap aristocrats deck. They just had uh, back in, what was it? Guilds of Ravnica or Ravnica Allegiance. One of those, they had the Orzov guild represented. So you have all these commons and commons and bulk rares that are very powerful when you they all synergize together and make a powerful aristocrats deck. So it, you can, I totally agree. You can 100% build effective versions of these expensive archetypes on a budget and still, you know, win your pod. Yeah, great note to end on. All of these strategies are really fun to play at any of the time, if you're playing them on a budget or if you're playing them expensive. It was fun to look over all this data and see what those trends are. And that can help us inform, you know, when we're going forward building a landfall deck, you know, being aware that that's probably an expensive strategy to build and then knowing that to help you, you know, guide and then find those more budget-friendly replacements. Or if you are building life gain and you see, oh, this is probably a little bit easier, which means what are the expensive upgrades that I can find in the future? That kind of thing. This is a, a lot of fun to look over these different 
different trends, these different things um, and to help us inform the way that we deck build, which is what we love doing on Idiotrek. This was a ton of fun, you guys. I really loved spending this episode with you. Thank you so much for joining me. But I think we are going to call this episode to a close. If any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, guys, where can they find you all? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. You can also catch us streaming uh, twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. And you can find me on the Twitterbirds at Dana Roach. And I'm streaming with uh, Matt and Joey Wednesday nights as well. And you can hear me on my other podcast a couple times a week, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And you can find the cast at EDHRECcast on Facebook and on Twitter. If you have a question, a keen insight to EDHREC's data, or maybe a challenge to stats pick that you think that we ought to know about, like Zephyr Nut with the awesome pick for my Graven deck, I'm so excited, you can email us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Special thanks again to Josh Lequai and the whole team at the Command Zone for handling all of the post-production work on the podcast, making it look as great as it can, as, oh, so, it looks so good. Uh, and thanks also to our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com, like we mentioned, you can find them using the price info links on EDHREC, or you can visit their websites. And if you do visit Card Kingdom, you can visit cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC to help show your support for the show. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDHREC your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs> <laughs>